Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. This is Rob Spee. Welcome to Channel Journeys. I'm your host and channel enthusiast. Thank you so much for listening today. And a big shout out to Magentrix, the sponsor of Channel Journeys. Magentrix is a partner tech stack company that specializes in creating web portals. They offer full integration with Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics, HubSpot, and other systems. You know, speed and cost of ownership are two key factors when choosing a PRM, partner relationship management system. Magentrix scores big on both fronts. I spoke with one of their customers who stood up a partner portal and PRM in just three weeks with deal registration, embedded affiliate links for referral partners, automated onboarding, and other features all integrated with Salesforce and their PowerDot marketing automation. Check out Magentrix at Magentrix.com or on the Salesforce App Exchange. This year is almost a wrap, and who can't wait for 2020 and the pandemic to be behind us? I have got a really awesome guest today to help us close out the year of Channel Journeys. We're going to close it out with a bang. And how many of you have dreamed of working in a firm that has a 100% channel strategy where everything goes through partners? Sounds great, doesn't it? Our guest today is a channel rock star, a living legend. He's living that dream of a 100% channel strategy. I'm talking with Frank Rausch. He is the winner of countless awards. He's the head of worldwide channel sales at Checkpoint Software. Checkpoint strategy has been a huge factor in the growth and profitability of this publicly traded company. And you might think that a 100% channel strategy would solve all of your channel problems. Well, not quite. As Frank explains, it's not quite as easy as it sounds. Are you ready to learn a ton from a true channel professional? Let's go. Hey, good afternoon, Frank. Welcome to Channel Journeys. Glad to have you on board with us. Hey, Rob. It's great to be here, and I look forward to it. Excellent. Well, I've been looking forward to speaking with you after I heard about Checkpoint's channel strategy, which a lot of folks, I think, <laughs> listening in are going to envy what you're doing there. But before we get started, Frank, you, you joined Checkpoint, what, year and a half, two years ago? It'll be two years, I think, January 11th, believe it or not. Oh, my, how time flies, right? Yeah, exactly. Could you just give us a really quick overview of what you're doing there and, and who Checkpoint is, for those who aren't familiar with you? Sure. Be more than happy to. So I joined, you know, like I said, I joined about two years ago. And one of the, re- you know, one of the reasons that I joined, it's really, really hard to be able to fix a product problem with a channel program. I wanted to go to some place that really was best in breed. Security always interests me. And you know, I, you know, to be honest with you, I wanted to go to some place where maybe the channel was, I don't want to use the word slightly sub-optimized, but might have been maybe not where people would have liked it. That's I'm curious to hear learn more about that given your strategy there. So go on. Yeah, all channel doesn't mean all good. sometimes. And I say that with the utmost respect because Checkpoint has been in business for over 25 years now. Our CEO is still our founder, Gil Schwed. We are a global leader in cybersecurity. Gil actually is credited by inventing the firewall. And it's really, really cool when you go over to to Israel because we are... an Israeli company, and we're mm-hmm. very, very, very much rooted in Israel. 
And I had the opportunity to be able to go to the uh, Simone Perez Innovation Center and to see a, literally a hologram of Gil being, being honored, being recognized for his contribution to security and to Israel. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the first companies which has really gone to start up to over $2 billion in Israel. And that's, uh, that's a big deal for them. It's a big deal for us. There's a lot of prou- pride in that. But, you know, we've, uh, we've been fortunate. Well, we've been a market leader. We celebrated this year 21 years in the Gartner Magic Quadrant for network security, which is a big deal to be able to sustain a culture, to be able to sustain a company over that period of time. We're publicly traded. We've been on the NASDAQ since 1996, and we have over 5,000 uh, 5, employees worldwide. Oh, you guys have been public for quite a while. I was looking through your financials. They are very impressive. The growth that you've had rising up to $2 billion in sales and, and a very profitable company, too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, we're, uh, you know, we're proud. We're certainly proud of the balance sheet. When you're in difficult times, like we all obviously are right now, and you're going through something as horrible as the pandemic, I mean, you know, to not be able to furlough anybody, to be able not to be able to lay off anybody, to be able to not cut salaries, to be able to try to do the right thing for the employees. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just not only is it a great balance sheet, but I'll go back. It's a great culture. It really is. Nice. And looking at your numbers, it looks like the security subscriptions, the SaaS revenue now has surpassed your traditional on-prem licenses. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, I think we're kind of at that tipping point right now. Mm -hmm. So, so I think it's close to 50, 50. And I think you're right. Might be slightly over, but it's definitely headed in that direction. Do you still sell the on-prem or is it 100% as a service now? Oh, no, 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 no. We, uh, we have a very, very robust on-prem business. We still have a number of appliances. Those appliances, you know, are from the biggest of the bigs to some of, you know, some of the largest banks, some of the largest telcos down to SMB appliances. And we try to add to that environment every opportunity we can. One good example is Maestro. When we announced Maestro, probably about a year and a half ago, it gave a hyperscale, you know, just extraordinary scale scalability to the network, um, to the to the network security or the firewalls, and that's still important to a lot of companies because mm-hmm. everybody says, "Hey, you know, I'm going to work from home. I'm going to take everything to the cloud." Now, all that is great, but it's not necessarily reality if you're in defense, if you're in financial. There's still going to be a need for those data centers. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. So let's talk about your channel strategy. You guys have been 100% channel driven from day one, as I understand it. <laughs> yes, and I'm reminded, uh, I'm reminded of that every single day of every single week of every single month. And, you know, <laughs> you know it's, inter- it's interesting because, you know, as you and I have talked about a little bit, a lot of people say, wow, that's great. And I certainly envy that position. But with that position becomes a ton of responsibility. So it's not necessarily the nirvana that, that we all dream about, or, or is it? It's just come with, it still doesn't solve every issue. No, it is. It absolutely is. Because, I mean, we're a, uh, we're a, very, unique, we're a very unique company. We're a unique company where 
you know, as you indicated, we've been publicly traded for a long time. And as I talked about, we have our founder as our uh, CEO. So the dynamic that that creates when you go back into 1995, 1996, is really, you know, the image is Gil as a young man, he's still a young man, you know, literally knocking on partners' doors. And many of those partners are still our partners of today. But, you know, when you, you know, when you have the normal conversations that anybody would about channel, affordability of channel, why channel, why not go direct, we're all quickly reminded of Gil, you know, basically walking the streets, knocking on, you know, knocking on the doors and basically having the channel partners embrace him. And quite honestly, it's something that he's never forgotten. And he reminds me of that. And, you know, culturally, like I said, it's a really good spot. But you need to be able to make that operationally work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there are challenges that we can get into. So this 100% channel-driven strategy, does that mean that every single deal, every single license is actually on a partner's paper? So, I mean, it, it means more than that, to be honest with you, Rob. So, you know, as I, as you, as I spoke about when we, uh, when I was on it with Jerry Ungerman, who's our chairman of our board on the, on the uh, event that mm-hmm. we both participated in, you know, literally, literally, I get it, was called into our chief customer or customer officer's office. It's a lot of O's. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, basically, you know, he's the guy I work for. And he said, I really need to talk to you. We got a problem. And I said, what's the, uh, what's the problem? And we had just acquired Dome 9, who is, uh, you know, uh, who is and was a leader in cloud posture security. And, he, you know, the topic was, well, Dome 9 had several hundred direct customers. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. I said, really? He said, yeah, this is a big deal. This is a big sense of urgency. So we literally converted those customers over to a partner, cut them over in probably less than 30 days. Wow. So that's how committed we are to the channel. Yeah. And I remember Jerry made some interesting comments about really sticking to that strategy and how people will say, well, there are certain customers that have to buy direct. You know, we hear that all the time from the sales team. Yeah, we hold the line. So, you know, if you look at if you look at where we are really, really strong, again, it's the banks, it's the largest financial institutions around the world because they were really some of the first security security buyers. And that's where our strength is. And you can imagine going to some of those banks, which we both know are household names. Mm-hmm. And them saying, hey, you know, we don't need a partner. We don't want a partner. We don't do business that way. Either you sell direct or you don't sell at all. We've always held the line. And it works. I mean, you guys wouldn't be able where you're at if you hadn't been successful in selling to those those major firms, I'm assuming. Yeah, I would agree. And so to do that, to, to be able to reach and connect and sell to customers of all sizes, you must have a pretty diverse channel of types of partners that are that are able to sell into those big accounts as well as ones that sell into the smaller reach into the smaller businesses. We do we we do we do and we don't. Yeah. So so the way I would say is we are not over channelized. Okay. And that might not even be a word. <laughs> it is now. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it as a word because I just made it up. Because it's a lot easier to say whether you're over or under distributed. We're uh we're not over channelized. So if you look at 
some of our competitors, some of the complementary companies, some of them may have 70,000, some may have 200,000 partners worldwide. We only have probably about 62, 6,400 partners, mm-hmm. but they're, they're great partners. And I would, categorize, I, I would categorize them in a number of different ways. One, you know, going back to kind of where we started this about our CEO knocking on doors, a lot of those guys are still left and a lot of those guys are still vibrant. They really are. And they are security, pure play, highly dedicated partners that started their businesses in the 90s and are extremely, extremely loyal to us. So that's kind of, that's kind of one set. On the other side of the spectrum is really the, uh, you know, what I would call the born in the cloud partners. Mm-hmm. The um, partners that have come by the way of Microsoft, Azure, you know, or AWS or Google, et cetera, that are more focused on cloud security. You know, we have the same thing going on with IoT right now. But mm-hmm. in the middle, there's this great variation where there's partners that are worldwide partners, there are household names that you and I are both very, very familiar with, and they have been data center partners for most of uh for most of their history, and mm-hmm. now they're building out these billion, billion and a half dollars security practices. We don't value one over the other, quite honestly. We respect the legacy. We understand the scale of the data center guys, and we understand the specialization and the unique talent, unique skill set that the IoT and the cloud partners have. I'm curious, Frank, of those 6,400 or so partners, how many of those are transactional or what percentage of those are transactional versus maybe more just services oriented or are they all transacting? I would say, you know, I would say other than some of the big advisory firms, you know, such as Deloitte and others, I would say most of them transact. I would say it's highly transactional. Now, you bring up you bring up a really good point. How do they transact? Well, obviously, you have the MSSPs, you have yep. resale partner, you have various ways of being able to transact. But I would say a great, great majority into the high 90s are still transacting with us. Okay, interesting. And so with this strategy, what kind of sales team do you have to support it? You don't have a direct sales team, but I'm sure you have a, some type of field or inside sales team supporting the partners. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Because uh, vernacular right. is, is definitely key, key in an art in this industry. And <laughs> when, in the uh, two companies that I used to work for prior to working for Checkpoint, you know, we used to call it hey, the direct team, the direct, uh, you know, the direct selling motion or the channel. Well, here mm-hmm. we just call it, here we just call it a sales force, call it field, et cetera. And, you know, everybody, everybody deals with the channel. Everybody embraces the channel. Everybody talks to the channel. And it's really a very unique environment because honestly, I think you need less cams. You know, we, uh, we still have a great, we, we still have a high number of cams worldwide, but we certainly don't have anywhere near the number of cams or channel account managers that some of our competitors do. What I would say about that is, you know, it's really a testament to the regional sales managers, to the major account managers, to the territory managers that shoulder and take some of that responsibility very seriously. So they're 
your your sales teams they're taking a lot more responsibility in, in partner management or partner enablement yeah it's you know it's you know it's just simple things you know who attends a qbr with the partner right basically you know how are escalations handled is the first call hey let me find out who the cam is and then basically i'll have them get back to you or is there accountability and ownership of the problem or the escalation by the sales team? It's, you know, here it just works. I'm not going to say seamlessly, but I would say everybody is highly involved and highly accountable. And is every transaction or most transactions a, a hybrid co-selling motion where both the partner rep and your, one of your sales folks are, are involved in the deal? Yeah, I would, love, I would love to tell you it was. I would love to just paint this picture of all the gears just working together and clicking, et cetera. <laughs> but it, but it, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't necessarily work that way. So we have uh, let's talk about partner led. We have you know we measure partner led by inbound deal reg. Okay. So basically, basically the partner finding the deal before the sales force does, and that's worked out really really well since we started to focus on it. We're up big double digits year over year, and in some categories up triple digits year over year with the partners being able to find a deal. And then you have then you have deals. We talked about some of the large banks. We can talk about some large transportation companies, some large manufacturing companies where it's hand in hand. Basically, we're using the partners' labs. We're selling together. We're doing a joint proof concept. We have teaming agreements. Everything is good. Yeah. Then there's gonna then there's gonna be some some projects where you know maybe it's the roadmap, maybe it's uh, security, maybe it's government organization or whatever the case where our where our sales force is really leading the effort and the partner. I don't want to say fulfillment because I mean mm-hmm. I think fulfillment has a bad connotation to a degree, but probably is that way. But the, the interesting thing is, if you have all three motions and are all equally valued and are all equally present, then fulfillment isn't necessarily a bad word because that's just part of the deal. Yeah. We're, we're having this debate internally at my company as we look to tweak our program next year around, you know, how much we should compensate partners for partner-led, partner-sourced versus us finding a deal and bringing them in. How are you guys handling that? Yeah. I mean, I will give you my advice for, for whatever it's worth. Okay. So, you know, obviously, you know, obviously you want the partner to be able to bring you deals, but unfortunately, because the metrics are never clear enough. That, you know, who brought the deal and how, you know, there's, you don't want to get caught up in this great debate. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not productive and it can suck hours, weeks, years out of your life if you, if you do it that way. What we've decided to do is we've decided to be able to metric everything. So again, I mentioned inbound deal reg, conversion rates, deals being brought from the partners, influencer type of deals, et cetera. But we don't pay any differently on that deal versus a collaborative deal versus a fulfillment deal for that matter. Hmm. What we do acknowledge, we do acknowledge new logos. So we do pay a premium for new logos and we do pay a premium for emerging technologies. So when you look at Beyond the Perimeter, which has obviously become a big deal, 
this year. When you look at cloud security, IoT, Dev, as some of the examples, that's where you're going to see the partner paid to premium. Interesting. So you're differentiating new logo from an expansion of an account, and you can earn more or have a greater discount on the new logos. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's you know it's very simply because we're acknowledging the uh, lifetime value of the customer. Right. Right. And and that's what we're looking at too, because we we need to really drive a lot more new logo business. That's what we want to do, and that's and we want to encourage and promote the channel to do that and help us doing that. So that's why we're leaning in on that same concept of paying more for new logos. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's really a great strategy. It's a strategy that we're investing in. So we're investing in uh, data mining type of tools to be able to identify targets with partners. We're obviously investing in demand generation. And then everybody talks about the layer model, land, adopt, expand, renew. And, you know, we're, we're starting to be able to give partners the tools and the training to be able to execute on that model. I want to get into that, but first, let's go back two years. You mentioned that you you saw this company, excellent product, but the channel really wasn't optimized. What what were some things that were broken that you came in to fix? So, you know, without getting into a lot of specifics, you know, we had uh, we probably had a little bit of, of rebuilding to do mm-hmm. with the channel in the Americas. We were extraordinarily, extraordinarily strong in Europe, and we were very trusted and very strong in APEC as well. And I would even say Latin America, for that matter. But I think yep. North America, basically our reputation had dwindled a little bit. for With for the partners, you mean? Yeah, with the partners. And I think part of that is having your two major competitors being in America, you know, being U.S. headquartered and us having a little bit more of the Israeli flair to it, et cetera. So, you know, we're a little bit sub-optimized in that area. The other area that we were a little bit sub-optimized is, you know, when when you have the commitment that we have to the channel, Basically, that's it's an enormous commitment. It's an enormous commitment financially as well as resource to be able to support that. And you need to be able to make sure you're getting the value on the other end. And I don't think we were totally getting the value that we not not that we deserved, but the value that we were committing to from the partner ecosystem. Yes, exactly. Specifically in the Americas versus. Or, or in the U.S. No, versus I, the I other say, I, You know, I would say that's more, the latter is more of a worldwide statement. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's that's very similar to kind of the environment I stepped into at OutSystems when I joined. So interesting. So you, you had this situation and you developed a new partner program, your partner growth program. What kind of things did you introduce to address those challenges that you were faced with? Yeah, we, uh, yeah. I would say you know we looked at an, we looked at a number of different elements. So I mean you know the first one was you know how do we reward how do we recognize how do we brand our partners? We looked at our tiering system, we improved our tiering system, we aligned that with the growth pillars. We looked at deal registration and we looked at the predictability of deal registration and we put operational improvements in to be able to uh to be able to make deal bridge a little bit more predictable, a little bit more sticky. We um, redid our rules of engagement with our field. Not that they were bad. 
It's just that they probably didn't have the degree of clarity that we really needed them to. So we made sure that everybody was on the same page. We invested in tools. We invested in QBR tools. We invested in business planning tools. We looked at a system that was co-op versus development funds. So the partners were seeing their investment you know, as trailing indicators rather than the leading indicators. And they were only able to plan for six months at a time. So we introduced a development fund program We uh, to the subject of new accounts. We introduced a secured margin program. We made enhancements to our MSSP program. We introduced for the first time last year professional services, and that's been an enormous, enormous benefit to be able to open up that aperture, open up that margin envelope to the channel and not only train them, but to be able to give them the ability to shadow our guys as they go through and they, you know, not only do the back end, not only do the uh, pro services, but also do the assessments. And what that creates, it creates, you know, just a great day one experience for the customer and it accelerates your renewal cycle as well. And it allows you to cross sell and upsell. Then the uh, final thing is when I signed my offer letter with Checkpoint, which was obviously a few weeks before I joined, the first thing I heard about was this, this app called Engage. And Engage was a really creative idea. It added gamification. It added rewards to the partners at the uh, partner rep level and the partner SC level, you know, for doing activities and activities that we had proven over a period of time, you know, really, really resulted in sales, resulted in growth. Well, we, um, we took that app and we took it very seriously and we have revamped it and we have enhanced it. So now it's more of a guided selling app. So basically, if you want content alerts, if you want a collaborative dashboard, if you want live access to some of our subject matter experts, if you want access to the best collateral in the world, selling tips, et cetera, you have that literally right before you get on a Zoom or when we get back to the physical world while you're in the lobby waiting for, you know, waiting for the meeting. So it's been extremely effective. And literally this year, we've tripled the number of partner users on that. The final thing we did was we really wanted to put together a sense of community within the partner channel. And we had this great program that I had no part in. It was totally legacy called Checkmates. And it was a uh, user community. Well, we transferred over that over to the channel. And now we have a community of like-minded individuals. We have different tracks. And it's really working out very well. Well, there's a there's a lot to that. I got a lot of questions to dive into with you on that one. So in terms of engagement, like rep to partner engagement, is there any sort of conflict with your 100% channel strategy? You know, we most companies that have a blended strategy, you're doing some direct, you're doing some channel. And a common form of channel conflict is a rep, you know, taking a deal direct when a partner was involved. And um, you can have that, you know, conflict between your rep and the and the partner ecosystem. I'm assuming that doesn't exist. Maybe you have conflict, though, between which partners are going to be engaged in yeah, that opportunity I mean, of doing the sale. 
Yeah, I would love to, uh, you know, I would love to tell you when you're a hundred percent channel, you uh, eliminate some of the bad behavior and you eliminate some of the conflict, but you, you don't, you don't, <laughs> you do, you do eliminate a lot of it, but you don't eliminate mm-hmm. all of it. So obviously, you know, there's different decisions that need to be made. And that's why we try to be able to train our people. We try to be able to have rules of engagement. So they're choosing the right partner for the right reason. Yep. And there's the right governance model around it. So we had our bubble burst. It doesn't solve all the problems. You still have some challenges that you got to face. Well, that you got to be challenged, right, Frank, to, to enjoy the job. Otherwise, yep. what fun would it be? Yeah, I would agree. I would love to be able to just just have a few days without challenges. <laughs> by, by, the, by the way, they're not all partner conflict. They're the challenges that all of us have. But but again, I think that's kind of why they need us and why we do the why we do the job. But you know, it's really interesting because I'm going to say this in the right way. You know, when I when I look at some companies, there's really this unbalanced uh, comp plan for the direct reps or the field sales. There's almost this, this tax of doing business with the channel. We, you know, we don't have that because we're hundred percent channel. So once you take that off the board, then you find that there is a degree of transparency. There's a dr- degree of collaboration that works really, really well to be able to resolve conflict. So we're lucky in that regard. Yeah, yeah, that definitely helps. I'm curious, how are you training your partners? You're still bringing on new partners, I assume. How do you sell, train them to sell and your, your goal for partners to, to win early and win often? We spend a lot of time on partner enablement, partner training. And, you know, I think being an, you know being an engineering company, and by the way, there are a lot of companies in our industry that are very product centric and very engineering centric. And we are too. And it's not a bad thing, but sometimes you got to de-emphasize slightly the what Mm -hmm. in terms of the speeds, speeds, you know, how many threats are captured, everything like that. It's all really, really important. And you need to be able to shift your training over to the how, how do you engage? How do you close? How do you present? More importantly, how do you tell the story together? So mm-hmm. we've shifted our training a little bit from one direction to the other. Right. Less product focus and much more, like you said, the probably the how and why customers are, are buying from you. Exactly. And the, I'm really intrigued by this Engage app. I looked at, had over 10,000 installs from Google Play. So it's getting a lot of adoption. Is that, does that become a kind of a sales training tool in itself? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it, it really does. And it's not only sales training, but it's artificial intelligence. From the meaning that meaning that, you know, if you think about it and you have thousands of channel sales reps using it, being active users, just by what they're looking at, by what they're doing, by what activities they're documenting, you can learn so much. It's just like having a real real-time feedback machine. And most people probably are doing, trying to do something similar via Partner Center, some web app as opposed to a mobile app that you've done. Yeah. And, I, you know, again, I'll go back to, you know, I'll go back to the point where, you know, if you have mobile, if you have mobile app and you gamify the, the app like we did, then, you know, you, you partner reps, you know, you have all kinds of generations 
But yeah. you do have many millennials entering the entering the channel. In fact, my son is one of those millennials that basically entered you know entered the channel for a manufacturer. And we were talking about this the other night, and you know it's just that seems to work. It seems to be the kind of thing that people are looking for. And again, going back to the point, that real-time confidence to be able to, you know, utilize that app right before in the in the moment with the customer to be able to have the confidence you're going to be able to pull up what you need. The app's not going to fail. Seems to be it seems to be a competitive advantage for us. Yeah, I would think so. That that's really cool. And then the partners, these reps, they can earn points and then get rewards. And you talk about wizards and legends and things like that. Yeah, and you know that's kind of the way it started out. Yeah, you know when it when it started out, it started out in terms of you know hey you know people are going to use the app because they were going to get the rewards, and the rewards weren't like Amazon gift cards or trips or anything like that. The rewards were things that would be meaningful for an owner for uh, of the business. Mm-hmm. So they would be learning credits. There would be demo equipment. Okay. There would be various things that, you know, would not only benefit the rep, but also benefit the owner. But so, so my point is that was the original premise. But you but moved away evolved, from that? How, how it evolved is now those, now those prizes are still valuable and they're still sought after, but they are not the main motivator. People okay. are using the app and the feedback we're getting on the app is I use the app because it helps me sell more. It helps me grow faster. It helps me add more customer value. And that's exactly where we want to be. Interesting. Interesting. That's very neat. So business planning. I saw it was one of your program guides, I think, that as a new partner, is, is a business plan kind of mandatory to become a new partner? Yes and no. Okay. So we have different tiers. When you're at certain tiers, the business plan is mandatory. But okay. you know what? I recommend a business plan for everybody. It's a great tool. It's an online tool. And by the way, it's not only an online tool, but but there's also other features which turns your business plan directly into a QBR. So in other words, you have the ability to produce PowerPoints, charts, different graphics, to be able to take uh, take a look at a quarterly business, it helps the partners internally, and it helps the partners externally. So, uh, you have over six thousand partners. You don't expect all of them to do a business plan, or they could. You know, again, without getting into specific numbers, let's say ten percent of them do full blown business plans, and let's say those business plans have addendums in them. That would be a marketing plan a services plan, et cetera, just to be able to get 10% of that population developing and utilizing and not putting it on a shelf, but literally making them living documents. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that is. Who who do you recommend when you're you know talking to your your channel folks, who do you recommend participate in the business planning process, both from a partner side as well as from a checkpoint side? Yeah, so mileage varies. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like anything else. But I mean, I just uh, I just had two QBRs late last week, 
and they were with two of the largest partners in the world. Mm-hmm. And we had we, we had really great attendance. We really did. So to your point, we had somebody from executive management, COO, EVP, sometimes even a CEO, depending on the level of the partner. We had somebody from marketing, somebody from the CMO, maybe somebody that reports directly in the CMO. But we also, and this is kind of the new trend, and I'm really excited about this trend. We also had a regional sales leader mm-hmm. participate in QBR. And what we try to do is we try to match the levels and we try to match the level of responsibility. So if they're willing to commit their CEO, you know, I will attend, my boss will attend, basically Chris Galen, who's the president of the Americas, or one of the other geo leaders will attend. And, you know, we, we are starting to, we're starting to develop, I guess, credibility in the business planning and the QBRs. And mm-hmm. once you start to develop credibility, you know, I think you have two things happening. You have FOMO and you have gravity, and both are important. So people don't want to miss a big meeting, just like a big internal meeting. They don't want to be on the outside looking in. So now more people are joining the QBRs. Right. It also, gravity helps basically because now that it starts to get known that we're offering good QBR tools, we're offering good business planning tools, it just works like gravity, just like anything else in the channel. That's excellent. Frank, I have a thousand other questions I'd love to ask you, but I, I also want to be respectful of, of our time here. One other question on this, though, is what advice would you have for channel chiefs, CER, CROs, chief revenue officers, CEOs, you know, anyone who's kind of contemplating or trying to push for a 100% channel strategy? When, when is it a good fit? You, you've come from companies that had, didn't have a 100% channel strategy. They had blended strategies. Is this a great strategy for everyone, or do you think it is a certain type of company where this fits? I'm not sure it's a certain type of company. I think it's a little bit cultural. Yep. I think it's a little bit of a business model. And I think it's a lot of commitment. A so, lot of commitment. You know, you need to be you you need to be able to make it work and you need to be able to make you need to be able to make it sustainable. Because, I mean the worst thing you can do is is throw it out there and have to pull it back. Yeah. So I think you know, when when you do this, you know, we're in a unique situation because we had the same guy running the company, like I said, since the beginning. So that gives us a degree of authority, a degree of credibility, et cetera. But I think the biggest thing is, you know, nobody's going to be able to dictate whether you're going to be all channel or you're going to be a half channel or whatever the case may be. It needs, it needs to become part of the DNA. It needs to become extremely collaborative. And you need to be able to get buy-in from all aspects. And, you know, people say, well, yeah, sure, you need buy-in from the channel guys and you need buy-in from the direct sales. But it's so much more than that. You need buy-in from the CFO. And we have a wonderful CFO, COO, that basically took the time to understand this. She, she understands channel economics as well as, you know, as well as I do, for that matter. So, you know, it, you know knowledge helps transparency helps. And therefore, if the numbers work, if the culture work, if the collaboration works, and then you have reasonable rules of engagement, then you can really, really make something out of it. But, you know, just like anything else, 
if you have a gap in any one of those areas, you're probably going to fail and you're going to have to retract what you originally put out there. Yeah, no, those are great points. Well, let's let's skip. I always like to jump over, if we can, for a few minutes and talk about your channel journey. I was looking at, at your resume on LinkedIn. So I saw an interesting fact. You joined Compact as one of their first sales reps back when it was a startup. Yes. That's amazing. So you, you got in at the ground floor there, and then they were acquired by HP. What transitioned you from a seller, a sales rep, to a channel leader. Yeah, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the 30 second, 1 minute version of this. <laughs> yeah. um, because condense it, it down. It's a long long story. The the irony of when I when I joined Compact, there was literally six people in the company at that time working for Ross Cooley who talked to customers. And I had the I had the privilege of having the pharmaceutical vertical it was great, great time, et cetera. But I was on the direct side of a channel-only company because Compact was 100% channel. So then we went through the digital, we went through the tandem, we went through the HP. And, you know, basically I started to gravitate more and more to the direct side, whether that was running a region or running half of the U.S. And then I had the opportunity to be able to spend a year and a half doing strategy and planning. And I worked with people at that point, like Mark Hurd, like Marius Haas, people that were in the industry that I had a lot of respect for. And the irony of being in that job was the guy that was running the Americas at that time and the guy that was running sales for that individual said, we feel so bad for putting you in this job for a year and a half in strategy and planning that we will give you any job you would like that we have the ability to give you. And I said, uh, and I said to both of them, I said, well, you know, this channel gig, it sounds pretty cool. I mean, these guys have great dinners. They're all pretty good golfers. They, <laughs> all, seem and dining. Eat, they all seem to eat pretty well. And they know a lot about wine. Sign, <laughs> sign me up, sign me up for this channel gig. And that started that started just a totally different thing. And you know, I was at HP through through Carly Fiorina, through Mark Hurd, uh, through through uh, through Meg Whitman, and then transitioned over to VMware with Paul Moritz, with Pat Gelsinger. I had the opportunity to be able to work, you know, not not certainly not directly, but with Michael Dell. And, you know, it was just been a great experience. And it's kind of the, you know, it's kind of what I call the rule of seven and the rule of threes. The rule of seven is probably seven is about the maximum. You're going to stay in the role in a, in a, in a channel in a company. So mm-hmm. I spent seven years in a role with HPA. I spent seven years in a role with VMware. And while you're there in that seven years, you want to be able to triple the business or triple the channel business. And I was able to do that at HPA and VMware. Obviously not alone, just great executive support and great teams. And quite honestly, two fabulous companies. Yeah, you've been with great companies, with great people. And, and how funny, you started out with a company that was 100% channel and, and now you're back with one. Yes, exactly. I just can't get away from it. I guess um, <laughs> some kind of magnet. In a right, right. Way. And you gave away that secret that we're all on the channel because of all it, all it is is golfing and whining and dining and exotic travel, right? 
No, I said that's what I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very different when you're in the role. That's for sure. Exactly. Well, what about outside of work? What, Frank, what do you enjoy doing outside of the channel and on your... I have great family. I'm very fortunate to have both my parents still alive. Nice. I have a uh, father that just turned 91 and a mother who's 93. You, you know, just have a very unique environment because I've held five, six worldwide jobs. I've been a, uh, I've been a vice president probably since I've been in my early thirties and I never moved away from Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to school. I'm an advisor on the board of Drexel university, which is a, my, my one night. So one, I love my family Two, I like to give back. And I've had the ability to do that in Philadelphia and be very well connected in Philadelphia and I had the ability to do it. I used to love to travel. I still love to travel. And, you know, right before the pandemic, right before March kind of shut us down, I was in Thailand. I was in Australia. I, you know, it was just great. And I enjoy that. I still enjoy it. And I... Um, co-invested and my son and his partners really, really own this. We have a bar. I never thought I would, uh, I never thought I'd be involved in a bar, but it's one of the oldest rock and roll venues in the U S and it's just a remarkable experience. It's been a tough time through the pandemic, but it just kind of keeps me alive and we have a lot of fun up there. How fun is that in Philadelphia? Yeah, it's right between kind of Philadelphia and Manhattan. Okay. What's the name of it? So it's John and Peters. And John and Peters is, you know, I'm going to put this in quotes, even though you can't see me making finger motion <laughs> right now. So it's said to be the oldest continuous rock and roll venue in the U.S. of that type. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a very, very small bar, but it's got a very rich history. You walk into it, and George Thurgood lived on top of the bar for a few years. Um, you've had Mary Shape Carpenter, Nora Jones, many the Kinks, many, many bands wow. just kind of go through there, and it's got a very rich history. And we look forward to celebrating the 50th anniversary. And I'm very proud of my son for being able to take it on. That is awesome. Well, as soon as we can all travel again, everybody's got to go visit John and Peter's. That sounds like an awesome venue. You are are welcome to join it. And prior to the pandemic, we had live music 350 nights a year. Wow. That's really cool. All right, Frank. Well, um, before we wrap up, anything that I didn't ask you that you, you wanted to mention on the show? No, you know, I would just, you know, look, you have a, you have a great audience you know, like I said, I, I try to get back. And I you know, I think the biggest thing that I accomplished was not working for HPE or not working for Checkpoint or VMware or anything like that. It's really having over 20 channel leaders that have worked for me kind of aspire to greater heights within a channel. And I, I would just say to anybody that wants to do this, it's not all going to be fun. It's certainly not going to all be wine, dinners, and golf. But it's great, you know, it's a great career. Check your ego at the door. Have some degree of humility. Have some degree of empathy. And enjoy the ride. And never forget who was in the car with you when you took that ride. That would be my advice. That's excellent, Frank. How can people reach you if they want to reach out to you? 
I'm a little, I'm a little bit more popular than I would like to be sometimes. I don't know exactly how my cell phone and my email got out there, but I would your, say, your email is Rod Rod Bapti at <laughs> yeah exactly. I would say the best way to do it is via LinkedIn or Twitter. I respond I respond literally to everything every day. Excellent. All right, great. Well, Frank, thanks again. This has been an excellent conversation. Really enjoyed it. Rob, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, take care. All right, you too. Wow, guys, what a fascinating conversation. I really could have spent another hour or more talking with Frank about all the details involved in their 100% channel-driven strategy. It's so rare for a founder and CEO to initiate such a partner-friendly approach and then see it through and continue it for 26 years. Very cool. Frank shared so many great points. I've tried to summarize them on my website at channeljourneys.com backslash CJ62. While you're there, you'll find links to some additional resources and be sure to subscribe to catch every episode. I promised you a special offer on Magentrix. Check out Magentrix at magentrix.com. And if you decide to go with them, you sign up, you're going to get two free months on an annual subscription contract by using the discount code SPEEPOD20. Take advantage of that. I said this was a wrap on the year, but who knows? I may have one more episode surprise for you. Let's see. I'll keep you in suspense. Until then, be good. Santa Claus is watching and have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.